Today we are learning how to learn and maybe giving out the Teacher of the Year Award to a spin class instructor. That is telekinetic. What's up, Yins? I am Mitch. You are here, and both Tracy Zimmerman and Ryan Galmus are in Pittsburgh, where they've each amassed nearly 15 years of experience building online learning solutions. And for the record, 15 years in the world of online learning is basically all of the years. They're going to take us to school on the promise and the hype of virtual education. And in a wonderful bit of irony, we had to record this via Zoom, which is currently America's poster child for poorly executed learning environments. Just insert your own shoemaker's children analogy here as we welcome Tracy and Ryan. What time is it anyway? Do you have a job or something? Who doesn't use Zoom, Mitch? Uh, podcaster. <laughs> did you, oh, did you not hear me talking about that? So like, no, I'm you know, talking with my computer. Oh, oh, sorry. The big thing is that it's separate channels. So like, you know, you say something cool and Ryan burps in the middle of it on Zoom. I can't do anything about that. But, you know, on Zencaster, I can cut that out. So that's kind of key. So this is going to come out a little more authentic than usual. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it comes out so authentic that it doesn't come out, period, because you don't. <laughs> hey, we, I totally, I totally give you full right of refusal. Mitch, <laughs> yeah. we want to make this work for you. We're going to try to be well behaved. We know a lot of stuff about freaking online learning, that's for sure. Well, first off, I've worked with you guys in the online education space for a couple of years and, you know, I've since moved on and so have you, but you guys have spent a ton of time in this space in a number of capacities. So is there a way I should introduce you properly or do we just, is that enough? I go by Viscount myself. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Ryan Gelmas. I'm an edgy douche. <laughs> I've been working in um, educational technology for 14 years this year. I'm Tracy Zimmerman. I'm president and CEO at Robots and Pencils. I have spent 13 years um, helping and working in education across lots of different clients. I served as vice president of student experience and, and innovation for seven years at an education institution. And for the last five years, I've been at Robots and Pencils, where we partner with lots of different educational institutions. And then we also partner with different tech platform companies that serve the higher education market. I think what people will take away is that you've obviously had a lot of experience in formal online learning. And that's kind of interesting to me to even talk about that distinction because like the world wide web by its own existence is online learning. And there's so much that you can do in that capacity. And that's part of the disruption that that created online learning as a sector, right? Is like, Khan Academy and shit like that. And even stuff preceding that right, is like, you can do this 
in any kind of bite-sized format you want. You can do it all the way up to getting a degree that for reasons you guys will probably go into are not properly accredited, but just as valuable, if not more so for being a human being who's capable of doing something. So like to that end, what are, what are some of the things, the bullet points that you guys would rattle off if I asked like, what can online learning do that a traditional learning environment can't do? You know, there's, like you said, there's a lot of informal learning that you can do um, online. I think when you start to think about how, you know, creating a more structured program, I think the things that, you know, online learning can really do that either traditional education can or it may not be able to do as well. Um, I mean, there's a lot of advantages and people have been doing online learning for a long time. So one of the first advantages of online learning is really this idea of being able to be synchronous or asynchronous. So like you can sort of do it on your own schedule, right? So you have access anytime. And so depends on what you're working around in your life. If you have an asynchronous environment, you can do it before or after work. You can, you know, potentially even participate some on your commute or whatever. Um, if you, even if you have synchronous stuff, so think about, you know, us, we're live, we're having a synchronous discussion right now, but we're all doing it from wherever we are, right? I'm at my office, Ryan's at, my, at his house, you know, you're at your, your, I don't know where you are, are you in Airbnb, <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's one of the big advantages too, is that sort of flexibility. The digital sort of delivery, a lot of times, again, particularly with asynchronous or synchronous that's recorded, allows you to do things that really help with learning, like re-watching the lecture, which we're all like used to now. Like I can watch a YouTube thing. I just scrub back. I watch it again. I can watch it faster, yeah. slower. But like, think about when we were in school, you miss something from the professor. You're like leaning over like, Ryan, what did he say? And he's like, shut up. I'm trying to take notes. You know, like that yeah. was kind of the world of the past. So I think that that, those are like real advantages that are, that are already here and actually have probably been here for years. I mean, obviously things are getting faster, better. You get better content, you have more video and less static, but that's been there for a while. Yeah, I would tack on. I think I think the democratization there is important, right? You know, one of the big players in the space uses a tagline like um, "no back row," right? Like mm-hmm. the idea that learners are kind of on an equal footing. You know, Mitch and I, prior to starting the recording, we're talking about the changes that COVID brought to the place that I work, and one of the things that was really different was there were those people who are in the big corporate office, and then there's those people who have to chime in through a WebEx, right? And there's a disparity there between those in the room and those talking through the television set or through the little speaker on the center of the table. And there's something really democratizing about bringing all of these people and kind of leveling that playing field, which I do think that the technology that's available today sort of does that, right? Because if um, you've got, even in a synchronous environment, if you've got 16 people, but all 16 of those people are sort of faced with the same thing we're looking at right now, like one another in little squares with microphones in front of us, that's democratizing. Whereas in the past, if you think about, and we've all been in those, the dynamic of there's the loud mouth, right? Or the, or the, the teacher's pet or the person who always has the answer, there's the quickest to answer, and that can drown out other voices. So I think that there's a real opportunity to kind of level the playing field to a certain extent that um, these technologies in this space bring to bear. They also, yeah, that- though, Ryan, like you actually can still just bring those exact same problems to like, I just interrupted Mitch, mm. you know, <laughs> you just bring those same problems <laughs> into the, into it's, the a, it's kind of a new set of problems, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Although the tack onto that, Tracy, what is interesting is um, I remember years ago, and I'm going to probably bastardize it a little bit, but Dr. Marnie Baker Stein was giving us uh, a talk, uh, who's now the chief academic officer at WGU, but she had worked at Columbia at the time. 
And they had done some research that showed that the very first people who re respond to a message prompt and a message board then actually can derail and lead the rest of the conversation in yeah. a path um, that all of the rest sort of follow in, right? Because it's like, because now I'm sort of more responding to what Mitch might've said or what Tracy just said, rather than maybe what the prompt had asked me to say, or so, you know, again, and I think we're probably going to come back to this theme over and over again. I think that there's going to just constantly be cause and effect pros and cons, right? Uh, unintended consequences of each and every one of these things, right? Like moving away from physical spaces is going to have some negative consequences, some positive consequences. And I, I think we're probably going to talk a lot about that today where just every, every step forward also is a little bit of a step back, right? It's just kind of interesting. You know what? You just reminded me, I didn't even think about that, but I did that exact thing on like one of Penn State's earliest online only courses. So I get that. Um, and I get that I'm the problem apparently, but <laughs> well, you are, you are known to try to cause some coups in your day. So I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not at all surprised, but it is interesting because, um, when I had an opportunity to work with the folks over at Carnegie Mellon, um, the, the people who actually teach teachers, right. The ones that focus on andragogy and pedagogy and, and like try to teach you how to teach most college professors still to this day might have never taken a class on that. Right. So even yeah. what you're talking about, like, being introspective of like how are groups formed? What is the reason for forming those groups? What are all the criteria and the sort of guidelines that you provide to learners to create optimal learning experiences is still something that kind of lacks. I think that's probably another thing we'll cover today, which is I, I think there's going to be a massive movement towards sort of retraining the way we think about what a teacher does. Yeah. Right. That, you know, that like, Saying that it's lax and that there will be this this reckoning for that echoes a lot in, in you know, when we talk about telecommuting and, and what that brings to the table for management. But that yeah, that's like right in line with, I think, one of the points that we talked about earlier, that the notion of like education, if education is a place, right, if it's an ivory tower, then there's a natural sense of complacency for anyone who occupies that to say the fact that you're here means that you're going to learn and that, you know, I deserve to, I deserve to be the one teaching you and I know what I'm talking about. And this is this establishmentarianism that basically relieves you of having to actually know whether you're teaching the person or not and why the idea of online learning makes it so disruptive in the same way that I think telecommuting makes work disruptive. Earlier in, you know, my career and ha happened to be also in, in Ryan's, when we were, we were part of the online education group of, of larger institutions. And there was a lot of people saying, you know, can you really teach online? Is this effective? Are people really learning? How do you know? How do you know if they're successful? And, you know, we actually sought to answer those questions. We would say, well, we've got these, we've outcomes mapped and we've got competency and we've got assessment maps and yeah. we're working with current and we're actually we can see the data and we see how much people are logging in and we can see how quickly the faculty are answering questions. So we're answering all these questions. And at some point I stepped back and I said, well, how do you know people are learning in the in-person environment? Like right. it almost became to the point where I was like, you know, where you start to say, hold on. It's just like what you said, Mitch, just because we have a beautiful building and a library and perhaps accreditation based on the number of terminally degree faculty members and the size of your library doesn't mean that the students that are in those classrooms are actually learning anything. And it's, it's actually sort of frightening that those students can also get potentially good grades 
and get degrees <laughs> and show up working for me and not yeah. necessarily have really learned or be able to demonstrate competency or be able to apply what they've learned. And so I think that I do think in some cases, I, I don't think any of this is completely true or untrue. Most things are nuanced, right? But in some cases, the emperor has no clothes. You know, so I thought it was yeah. interesting that sort of when this was first coming out, you get this like, well, how do you know people are learning? It's like, okay, well, how do you know you're learning? Because we'll copy what you're doing. Oh, you're not <laughs> doing anything? Oh, we have tests and people do grades. It's like, how do you, and they'll say, how do you know that's really that student? Well, how do you know that student really wrote that paper in your in-person classroom? Because they dropped it off on your desk. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but yeah. I know a lot, I had a lot of friends in college. I was not one of them. Like their girlfriends did their papers for them, right? Like, I mean. Yeah, you know, this is interesting because one of the, things that I've been saying probably from like two months out of me graduating, which is now almost 20 years ago is like, don't go to college. <laughs> um, and that I think like, I'm shocked still being like a decade out of working in online learning and the online, online education space. I'm shocked to see that we still have this upside down or upside down market of people wanting more and more to jump into getting degrees. There being more and more demand among like your typical run of the mill employer to say like, we need a degree in order to consider you. And the high performers and the high performing employers saying like, that is meaningless. You know, it's like, it's so saturated and there's so little that you're actually taking away and I can't prove the competency to your point. Right. So like what value does it have to me that they've moved on? And yet it's like more in demand than ever. It's, you know, I have friends in, you know, Brooklyn and places like that where pre-K is financially untenable, which is fucking hilarious. And yet it's like, none of this is going to do you any good because the best employers who obviously, whose behaviors trickle down eventually to shitty employers is we need to see competency. We need to see proof that you know what you're doing. We don't need to see a, an accredited degree from an ivory tower. Well, I was just going to say, Mitch, I, I think that it, what's interesting about that, I agree with you. And I, I think what's interesting is we are seeing cracks, right? But I think it where we're seeing the cracks are areas where competency can be demonstrated in different ways. Because yeah. I think what we're all sort of saying is that degrees are just a coin of the realm. They're a currency, they're a shortcut, they're a gatekeeper, right? So if I'm hiring a manager at a retail store and I know that that manager is going to have to do a series of tasks every day, I have to count on them to open and close and count the money and all these things. It's just shorthand to say, well, if you slog through a four-year degree, then I can probably trust you, right? Whether that right, four-year right. degree was in theater or marketing or business or retail management, right? right? And I think that the employers you're talking about, I think the tech space is where we're really seeing a ground shift here, right? Yeah. Because um, MIT no longer requires you to have a terminal degree to be a professor. And I think that not all degrees and not all subject matters lend themselves to that. Like business is an interesting one, right? Like yeah. <laughs> business has always been a little bit, you know, BSy. There's a there's a, <laughs> there's a woman at um, WGU named uh, Joanne, who, who uses this great analogy about playing poker and, and playing chess, right? And that most of higher education is still kind of poker. There's a lot of bluffing going on. There's a lot of mm -hmm. bluffing going on by the universities themselves. There's a lot of bluffing going on by the students, because if I can talk a good game, if I can wow you on my resume, if I've got the connections or the family, right? Like that's poker. 
But if we can move to towards a world like chess, where there's board, there's rules, there's way to demonstrate whether you can win or lose, right? If your moves are appropriate for the for the situation that you're put in. And I think that that tech lends itself to that, right? Because I can pull you in a room and hand you a whiteboard marker and ask you to walk me through your algorithm. Or I can ask you as a um, UX designer to walk me through your process and to show me your portfolio, right? So even in my field, it's really easy for me to gauge whether or not you have some sense of competency or whether you read a couple of good Google posts about, you know, what to say in a UX interview. In my mind, the mental model is like, there's mastery, there are things before mastery, but then there's mastery of, you know, the thing. And then there's the ability to teach the thing to others. And then the natural consequence of getting really good at teaching it is that you can automate it and then no one has to do it anymore. So like that sounds, that sounds great when it's getting water from the river to feed your crops, but I don't know. Does it sound great when it's, you know, raising your kids to have morals? I don't, I don't know. Like there's, and somewhere in between is getting an education in some discipline. So. I do think, and we, we use this term a lot, like pathways to opportunity, right? And I do think that education and institutional education, as Tracy said, right, structured learning and the credentialed learning is still one of the best pathways to opportunity. Mm. Um, I think one of the interesting things that we're going to have to ask ourselves as, as these technologies and these algorithms and, and you know, self-paced learning come along or what are some of the things that like a traditional undergraduate degree that an 18 year old from a small town in Texas who maybe only knows like who oil drill technicians are and doctors and lawyers and policemen, the kind of normal, like who's never heard what a marketing automation specialist is, right? Like how are they going to be exposed to those things in the first place to even then know what to study? And I do think that there's a lot of benefits. That's just one of, kind of the idea of finding yourself, right? Now, I do think that there's innovation that can happen there and maybe sooner than later, college will no longer, especially at the cost, right? Like nobody wants to spend 40 grand a year to find themselves anymore. I think we were probably the last kind of generation, right? Like that was sort of the beauty of the nineties was like, I can go to school and be a liberal arts major and kind of go, I don't know. I have an interest in performing arts and media and let's see what happens right now there's kind of an expectation that 16 year olds kind of know their path. But um, I heard it once said that a lot of what college gives you is like the opportunity to see adults and to see different models of adults. But again, maybe that'll be replaced by boot camps too. Maybe we'll have a theater boot camp that we'll send kids to so that they can learn to put on a show together or, you know, student government and these types of things will still exist. But it is one of the things I do worry about, you know, is, and I know you're, you, you kind of like to think about the future of like, what about when we have these algorithms and these machines and things like that? And I I think we're marching there. I don't know how soon we're going to get there, but I do think we might lose something along the way too, if we're not careful, or there might be opportunity for other players to come and fill these spaces, right. To, to create those kind of experiences for people that are now non-academic that you can learn soft skills. Everybody talks about those, right? I had never heard someone say that before about like models of adults in, uh, in education. That's interesting. Well, if, if that's your, if that's Ryan's hypothesis, it may answer why we turned out so differently because I did take some college classes, but I went right into the workplace. And so I think I got my models of adults much more. I mean, obviously beyond like parents and stuff in the workplace. Yeah. And so, um, and I, I did learn a lot from people and I, I kind of, I guess I learned, you know, through baptism by fire, 
how to deal with those conversations and, you know, different types of personalities and things like that. So one of the things that I'm really, in, and, and I was in a different situation. So, you know, you know, I was, a, I was a single mom. So I was a young single mom on, on my own. I had a kid to take care of, so I had to make money. And so, and actually, you know, I represent most students today, me, me in that profile. Yeah. Um, when over 70% of students in, in higher ed, at least, are non-traditional. I mean, they either have kids or they have jobs or they don't have any economic support. And so one of the things I think is really interesting are programs that pair closer with the workplace and and with the institutions. You know, like as as a as an employer, you know, I need really great educated talent that are that are really good and they have certain, you know, kind of core values that are important to us and they have certain skill sets. And I think there could be, and, and we're not teaching and learning experts at robots and pencils, really, right? That's not like our discipline. No, then we do a yeah. lot of things in our methodology is kind of inherit to software development where you like you have PRs and you have all that sort of like pairing up and you know processes and documentation and teaching that that is inherent to it but it's not it's not really teaching and learning so I'm what I'm interested in is like sort of earn and learn type programs because when it comes to economic opportunity a lot of students people talk about giving students you know financial aid or tuition forgiveness or now we talk about this free free community college and these are all like great ideas but like a lot of them actually just need jobs to pay for everything else like I needed a job to pay for daycare. I need a job to pay my car payment, and my insurance and all that kind of stuff. So how can yeah. we create pathways? And, and I feel a strong responsibility of this, like, you know, as an employer who wants to help change the world, you know, how can we make it so that people with maybe a little bit less seniority and less education and less, you know, can, can, can successfully transition into a fully productive teammate and then whatever that means, right? Because everyone's learning and upskilling and reskilling and stuff all the time anyway, you know, but, but getting to the point where, you know, for, for me, I, I'm running professional services business or building digital products. I can tell if people are contributing or not. It's right. easy to measure. Some employers don't do that either. Kind of like how some institutions don't really teach their students. So those, those people aren't my problem necessarily, but you know, so can, can we get students to a certain point, maybe it's a one or two year program. And maybe they have like, it's like an internship on steroids, or maybe they have a mentor from inside robots and pencils that like, you know, helps to develop them. Because like, the thing is, I'm not trying to create a bunch of faculty members, like my team has jobs, but they can be mentoring people. So how do we, how do we do that? Because that seems like a lot more sustainable. I mean, there's really crazy things. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Salesforce has made this tremendous investment and they've created all this trailhead content and they can, they're just like, forget it. We're not waiting for your institution, go online and learn what you want and go get a job. Most employers don't want to be doing all of the creation of curriculum and all that kind of stuff, but they also were, were frustrated in, in many cases of what were the people that were getting when we try to hire them, right? Okay. So I, I really think the partnership between the institution and the quote marketplace, because the other thing marketplace has, like we have jobs that have money. So, you know, you could get people, whether they're intern level paychecks and then they get a step up raise, right? As they can demonstrate competency through like learning, you know, that actually gets delivered through the institution, but maybe there's a partnership say between like a hiring manager and the faculty member or something. Like I'm very interested in that kind of stuff, Mitch. Like I'm a little probably on the on the edge compared to the market. <laughs> And Mitch, my institution is really thinking long and hard about this, as several others are too. You often hear people talk about like the skills economy now, right? Like this idea that um, 
if I can acquire a certain amount of skills that are then demonstrable to build that bridge between the marketplace or industry and education, that that will build a stronger bond because it can reciprocate, right? Like the, the industry can say, Oh, well, these people claim to have these skills, but now we can better define what skills we're actually looking for. So if I'm Walmart and I need more logistics people or whatever, I can talk to certain institutions and explain exactly what I need so that they can build their curriculum a little bit more focused on what I need so that then that collection of skills better translates. It's an interesting world though, because I think um, one of the things, you know, and I'm not an expert on this sort of skills economy, but one of the really tricky things is even just building like the nomenclature and the format of like, well, what is a skill and and how do you demonstrate it? And how do you make it a currency that can be exchanged and some of the critics will just say, oh, well, yeah, that's just a fancy transcript, right? What's the difference? If mm-hmm. I, you know, went to my school and I took English 101, um, what's the difference between English 101 and this badge that you gave or this competency that you gave? But there is a difference because of all that data that sits underneath it that actually says, no, these are the things, right? Because English 101 at a liberal arts college is very different than English 101 at MIT. Well, when you guys talk about getting that, level of definition more to be more fine and this constant upskilling having to be, you know, catered to the specific learner and everything that a lot of that falls back on the idea of personalized learning, which has always been, uh, I don't know about always, but I guess for a long time, it's just been understood to be like pretty obvious, the closer you can get to a one-to-one student teacher ratio, the better. And so to that end, uh, I want to give you guys my hot take, which uh, for those who don't know, is a straw man argument where I just kind of put myself out there to get to get beat down um, by uh, by a, a gang, I guess, in this case, because there's more than one of you. So <laughs> so my hot take is that if personalized learning is what justifies a teacher, then really we're just like an algorithm away from putting all teachers out of a job. And I say that purely from a mathematical perspective of, you know, a classroom that has 30 kids and one teacher is worse than a classroom that has one kid and one teacher. And if the teacher is an algorithm and does a satisfactory job of playing the teacher, then you basically have created a better classroom and a better learning experience. I I think you could say the same for lawyers and doctors too, right? I mean, at some point there will be a system that's smart enough to diagnose what's best, right? Like, but there's also something to be said for bedside manner and understanding the circumstances. And I think it's the same with the, with the the faculty, you know, student connection or the, the teacher learner connection, which is understanding more than just what's on the page. So I think there's really great advances, like, you know, here in Pittsburgh, the Carnegie Learning folks, I think are doing some really great stuff with their tool. It's a math tool. Math is kind of really easy to kind of map out, right? Because it's a science, (laughs) it's not an art, right? Like you can kind of know where a student fails, but most of their efforts going into teaching teachers how to leverage the data that comes out of those systems so that they can better help that student over whatever their problem is. Cause so I guess a little bit of your straw man argument is that we may be there someday, but I think we're probably far from it. And um, I think that loss of that human connection is, could potentially be dire. I would add, I, I guess a couple of things, Ryan and, and Mitch, I, I think that where we are 
with this um, personalized learning or this automated or like, you know, AI is a teacher sort of idea is we're still in relatively early stages. And really at Robots and Pencils, what we see with education and really with everything is we're kind of more in the machine assist phase with AI. So can I like automate your entire job? No, but like if you could you properly use these tools so that you become more efficient, more effective, you know, for example, if you've got students that are interacting with, you know, again, like a, a math tool and you're something like a dashboard to faculty or teachers and they're kind of what, what they're doing now is like they're walking around, they're saying, hey, Brian, I'm seeing you're struggling with this specific thing. And you're showing which students are most at risk based on engagement and skills mastery and all those kinds of things. So you instead of the teacher sort of guessing, you know, who's really struggling, or yeah. I can tell you're struggling or and pretty sure you did your dad did your math homework you know, you can use this machine can like assist it and make it better. And, you know, to the, to the jobs point, like our jobs are all always changing. And so the role of faculty member or the teacher instructor, instructional designer is going to evolve over time. Like that's just the nature of, of the world. And actually it actually happened really fast this year because our, our teachers had to learn to teach online. They had to become like zoom experts. They had to be able to like evaluate digital tools. And so I, I think that that, you know, that's just kind of, part of life. And, and sometimes, you know, we can be like a little bit like protectionist about those roles, but really everybody's job is going to change over time. And they, and they have, you know, we're not in like the one room schoolhouse anymore either. And the other thing I would say is like, it is kind of intuitive to say, Hey, the best learning happens like one-on-one. Like I sit with you Mitch and you like turn me into a digital marketer because you're so smart and I, and I'm, and I'm a good learner. I'm going to work with you. But actually that's not necessarily true depending on the topic because you know, actually some really effective learning helps. It happens in small groups of peers, actually, right? Because you have that opportunity and, and Ryan talked to, I think that's some of what Ryan's talking about when getting that human piece, like we have this opportunity for discussion and really synchronizing and learning and, and applying things. So I don't think it's always like, you know, a kid sitting in a corner with an iPad. I just don't, I think yeah. the human piece, or like, I look at how much we learn on Slack, right? I mean, like, having that discussion inside of Slack, like I might post an article and Ryan will say something and I'll say something. And then we get into like a, a fight on Slack or something, you know, or a discussion. And then you have somebody else weighs in. We, none of us really know about it. We just read the article. So but we're learning by kind of challenging one another's ideas. So I, I think there's, there's still a lot of ground to be explored there too. And we didn't talk too much about it, Mitch, but I think that like, you know, even though we all sat here, right, and we all worked together almost 10 years ago, we talked about how we've been 13, 14 years in this space, but we're still really at like the precipice. We're at the beginning. Like I was telling Tracy, so I'm I'm a big Peloton convert now, like I'm part of their cult. Right? Oh, really? Okay. And one of the things that's interesting is when I first got the bike, I, I'd never take a spin class. So I thought, I don't know if I'm actually going to be into the spin classes, but I like bike riding and maybe I'll do the like kind of virtual classes where you ride through Rome or whatever. And, and I had been really motivated by closing my rings on my Apple watch. So I was kind of becoming a metric guy. But what I find fascinating is the interesting combination of like these really compelling, motivating instructors. And there's all different types, which I think is one of the things that Peloton does a really good job of. There's ones that'll kind of make you want to cry. There's ones that'll motivate you with cheesy kind of uh, Tracy's favorites, the ones that'll kind of talk about what love live life, you know, all these kinds of fun things where I, I, I like the kind of the, the, the one who wants to talk about what it was like when she went to her prom and she'll get you crying while you're on the bike, which is weird. Or some of them are a bit more robotic. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting. It's a very vast. You have all different shapes and sizes, all different ethnicities, all different types of people. 
And, and what you'll find is that some days different people motivate you differently. And I think that that's a lot of where I think education is, is going to have to go. Again, I, the reason why I bring up Peloton is I think they've come up with an interesting model of like, yes, it's mass broadcast, but there's a community aspect. There's a leaderboard. There's competition. There's that kind of sense of like they're talking right to you, especially now that they don't even have folks in their studio. It's kind of like this person on a bike who's kind of staring right into a camera motivating you with when you have your headphones in there right in your ears, right? And I said the other day on a walk that I feel like, especially our K-12 teachers, right? They're becoming, some of the best ones are probably right now should be learning how to be the best streamer. Yeah. Right. You know, because that's what kids are watching when they're at home. Anyway, they're watching somebody build Legos or they're watching somebody play a video game. How can a, how can a faculty member, how can a teacher think of themselves in the same way and motivate in a new and interesting way, leveraging the technology and I think algorithms and things like that, to what Tracy and I were talking about earlier, can help inform them and guide them and give them a tool set that, you know, maybe at no other time in history you've had to be able to help you diagnose what the students are learning and not learning. But it's still there's that secret sauce of like, what makes Mitch so compelling? Well, he, he will cause a coup. He, you know, he is um, provocative, right? There's something about Mitch is a person that draws people into wanting to listen to this podcast. I think it's that same thing as is going to have to exist in education because Tracy's point, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where it's just me and my phone, but that the phone is a connection to another human being that's drawing me into it. And sometimes that can be done at scale. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I love to respond, but I can't get the vision out of my head of you like, nailing your personal best on a bike while crying. Well, give a shout out to Christine. Anybody that's a Peloton rider at home that's listening, take some Christine classes. Oh, she somehow. I totally had an alley morning this morning, Ryan. I completely disagree. <laughs> had to listen to 90s music. It's the only thing getting me. We, we, we've realized that we don't have a lot of common ground on the instructors. We, really oh like. we both like Alex. And this is how deep the cult of Peloton is, which also has to do, Mitch, with the fact that we're tra- like, I'm trapped in my house with my, you know, my wife and I, we work separate jobs, but like, we don't like to talk jobs at the dinner table every yeah. day because that's boring too. So we often catch ourselves going, well, what instructor did you take this morning? Oh, what, what did they talk about? Like, there's these two instructors in England are dating one another. And, you know, <laughs> so b- before you know it, these folks who you've never met in real life, feel like your coworkers. They feel like the type of, you know, they have an actual impact on your life. And that's why in a lot of ways I've been thinking about, like just reading my Peloton, I think that the Peloton is an interesting model that education can probably learn something from, right? You yeah. know? Totally, totally um, agree. Well, I even just like going back, Peloton's done an amazing job, Mitch. Like when we talked about what's possible with online, Think about what I said to you earlier. You can have these live synchronous class. Ryan and I can plan, and sometimes we do it like three times, to take the same instructor at the same time. So at 11 a.m., we're both on there with some compromised instructor that neither of us like. And then we get on at 11 a.m., and I can see, you know, we're kind of racing each other, except I lose right away. But And you're, and you're on there, and you can see there's like 3,000 other people on at the same time. Yeah. And on the flip side, I'm a big asynchronous person, so they record every single one of those sessions. So Ryan can go, oh, I took this class live. It was like 90s you would lo- music, you would like it. And then I'll be like, fine, I'll put it in my favorites and I do it whenever I want or when I'm in the mood for 90s music or whatever. And then I can say, and I can still race Ryan who's recorded. I can race myself if I took it before. So even just think about what helps to motivate people. Some people are more competitive, but there's so much flexibility in that learning style. And, and, and it's funny, Ryan, you just said, I feel like I know them, like they're my coworkers. Like right now, 
how different are they from your coworkers? Your coworkers are all on <laughs> Zoom and Teams too. In fact, like, you know, yeah. you may be having a more immersive experience on the Peloton. So it's kind of interesting. It's interesting times right now. Yeah, that's um, that's a stupendous point. The other ones that we've been talking about a little bit, um, Mitch, are, are things like Noom and Headspace. Mm. Um, these products that have both a sort of pathway um, like Noom, if it's losing weight or whatever it might be, there's a program there, right? But that there's also this guide or counselor or, you know, um, coach who's interacting with you to help, you know, maybe adjust that path for you or just keep you on that path. And those are models that we're seeing in higher education um, that are emerging. I think institutions like my own are doing a really great job of that, of trying to think about like, how can we not just turn this into being about content? And just about um, you know um, assessment, but how how do these pathways work? How can we motivate people? How can we keep them in the flow? I think one of the difficulties that we have though is that it's really hard to build these cohesive experiences in education, particularly at the institution level, because there's so much space to cover. Part of the beauty of like a Peloton or a Noom is their focus, right? Peloton's here to get you to you know sweat your ass off. Noom's here to help you diet, right? Headspace is here to calm you down. Um, the thing about a university is it's just so multifaceted, right? There's so many different services. And the three of us all worked in kind of, you know, the early days, right, of trying to like, let's re replicate everything that we have on a traditional college with maybe the exception of the rock climbing wall, right? But like, how do you rebuild the suicide hotline? And how do you help people with career services? And how do you do all those things? And you just realize that that sprawl makes it really hard to build super compelling, high touch experiences because there's just so much ground to cover. And again, I think there's opportunity there because, you know, startups could do that. But then when you have to tie all those things together, they oftentimes make a really incoherent experience. It's one of the big challenges we see when we work with these universities, right? Because some universities want to try to boil the ocean and they want to try to rebuild all of that, which is almost impossible to do or they're trying to weave together an experience from a handful of vendors. Usually they're pretty big vendors. And that can be, you know, a mismatch or a hodgepodge or the experience can feel disconnected because mm -hmm. you're moving from like a services layer to an academic layer to a career services layer to a financial services layer that, that sometimes is not very coherent and easy for a student to really kind of navigate. And so I think that's part of the holy grail that we're all sort of fighting for too. And we do see some institutions really making big bets and putting a lot of money on the table to try to say like, how can we build really cohesive experiences that, um, you know, drive a student to success that don't feel totally disconnected. Right. Well, this is awesome. This was super enlightening, which is, I, I mean, I expected it to be, but there were even some, some points that I hadn't even really considered, which is great. Do you guys have uh, anything to sell our way to our dear listeners? Um, so Robots and Pencils believes in combining the humanities and sciences to unlock human potential. So like some of the things we talked about today, like it's not just the tech, it's also what's the people side. Um, we make mm -hmm. digital products with our education, financial services, retail and consumer goods clients that do things in far better ways. So we're, we're really trying to unlock potential. So if somebody has an idea and they think they see an opportunity and we you know, give us a call. We'd love to help. Awesome. Maybe I can put my Peloton. Um, no, um, you can't. Come on, that was Referral my code in there. So <laughs> I can get some. I can get some free sweatpants.
Thanks again to Tracy and Ryan for their time. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack. And thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Send all your hot takes and hot guests to Telekinetic Show on Twitter or telekineticshow.com. Smell you later.